1967, a college student named Libby attended the Urbana Missions Conference um, that's put on by InterVarsity Fellowship, and uh, it was here at the Assembly Hall where Libby attended with her boyfriend, Tom, and during the final commitment night, both of them submitted their lives to the Lord and gave themselves to a full-time Christian service. Uh, but Tom did not go, nor did Libby go to seminary. Uh, rather, uh, after they married, Tom became an optometrist. And both moved to Afghanistan. And for over 30 years, Tom and Libby Little served there in that dangerous part of the world, providing vision care uh, for the people in Afghanistan, and uh, they were stationed out of Kabul, uh, and it was just a time where they served in the midst of increasing conflict. They uh, lived through the Soviet invasion, uh, through the uh, era of the Mujahideen, and through the Taliban. Tom spoke fluent Dari. Uh, he and his wife Libby reared three daughters there. They would return home uh, every few years for about six months to do fundraising for the mission and to then regroup and then go back to their post where God had stationed them. And rather than being the only one to perform the eye surgeries, Tom trained the Afghanistan people to do what he did. Uh, and even during the Soviet invasion, when the men would leave the village to fight, why Tom then saw that crisis as an opportunity and trained the wives and the mothers uh, in, in that very harsh culture toward women, uh, trained them to do the eye surgeries, the same surgeries. And his methodology ensured the sustainability of this mission. And Tom knew that the calling was dangerous. In fact, on one occasion, he gave straightforward feedback to uh, a new volunteer who apparently had, you know, uh, some uh, dreamy-eyed visions about what it would be like to, you know, uh, serve in a far-off place. Tom, Tom put the boots on the ground pretty quickly when he gave straightforward feedback to this new volunteer, uh, said, here's what you need to do to be successful at this place. Number one, realize that following God's call could mean losing your life. So deal with it and then stop worrying about it. And then number two, stay focused on the craft and discipline of eye care work and keep your mouth shut until you get some experience. Very straightforward. Over 30 years, Tom and Libby Little. In August of 2010, shortly after conducting a two-week medical camp in a very remote part of the country, Tom and his medical team were returning to Kabul when militants ambushed and murdered them. All ten of the team dead. They were unarmed against these militants. And uh, Tom's wife, Libby, said, I do not hold hate in my heart. Um, 
and she received the Presidential Medal of Freedom for her husband. And Libby, at that gathering, spoke these words. She said, although Tom was killed in 2010, he had already surrendered his life to God's good purposes back in 1967. Tom and Libby Little. Inspirational examples of the identity that I want us to consider this morning. We're in a series of messages on identity. Who am I? Who am I? And we are considering questions like, you know, how do you know who you are and what defines you as a person? Is it your gender? Is it your physical appearance? Is it your personality? Your intelligence? Perhaps your identity is found in your feelings. Are you the sum of your feelings? Are you the sum of your desires? Who am I? And even, even before we get to that question is really another question that has to be asked. And it's this. Who is most qualified to tell me who I am? Who has the final say regarding my identity? And what we've learned is that there's two ways to answer that question. There's an answer that focuses uh, that's from below, and there's an answer that's from above. The below answer to that question, who am I? Uh, you know, we're Americans. We're freedom-loving Americans. We get to determine who we are. That's what the Revolutionary War was fought for. That's why George Washington showed up. We get to fight for who we are. We are. We are autonomous. Autonomous. Auto. Self. Namas. Law. Self-law. That's identity from below. But I really wonder if that's the case. I mean, think about it. I didn't get to choose my hair color, my eye color, my birthplace, my parents, my personality traits, my gender, my intelligence, or my socioeconomic status when born. What about you? Are we, are we really that autonomous? Really? Uh, here is an important quote from uh, Michael Horton and uh, his website, um, White Horse Inn. Listen to this. Untethered from both nature and scripture, the human family seems incapable of identifying who they are or why they exist. Our refusal to bow to God's will sets us up for the ultimate betrayal as old as humanity itself. The shifty serpent said to Adam and Eve that they could be like God. Their bold and treasonous grasp of freedom, however, led to chains they could not even begin to understand. The confusion and desperation that mark our age are rooted in this faithful choice of our first parents. And like them, we have sought to determine our own existence, to identify ourselves to choose for ourselves, and the result is slavery and death. Autonomy. Identity from below. Well, what we've been arguing here in this series is identity from above. And identity from above carries with it two very significant assumptions. Number one, God exists. There is a God. And you're not him. 
Assumption number two, God is the most qualified person to tell me who I am. And that's why we've explored Psalm 139 when we began this series talking about who am I? I'm a creature. I'm created by God. Lord, you, Psalm 139 says, you made me, you know me, and you're with me. And then we talked about the glory of what it means to be in Christ. What's true of Jesus is true of me. And, and then we talked about what it means to be clothed in Christ. Uh, to receive the robe and the ring and the shoes of our elder brother, Jesus. And that led us to this beautiful picture of adoption. I am a, I'm an adopted child of God. And these are all warm and pastoral images of what it means to have our identity determined by God. And in addition to these warm and pastoral images, we're going to be challenged today by another dimension of what it means to have our identity in God. As we today consider, I am a servant. I am a servant. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn to Luke chapter 17, verses 7 through 10. The New Testament book of Luke chapter 17, verses 7 through 10. Jesus tells a parable, and you'll find that on page 876 of your church Bibles. If you don't have a copy of God's Word to call your own, please take that copy that's in the pouch in front of you and receive it as a gift from our church family. Luke chapter 17, verses 7 through 10 uh, is a parable about this very question, who am I? I am a servant. So follow along with me as I read, and uh, you'll find this, as I said, in Luke 17, 7 through 10. It's on the screen. It's in your outline. Jesus says, will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink? And afterwards, you will eat and drink. Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. This is God's word. I am a servant. I'm a doulos. That's the word in first century Greek, doulos. And um, the translation here from our Bibles is kind, this word servant, because more starkly, the word is, I'm a slave. I'm a slave. Now, I mean, just that word just, you know, you know kind of triggers a winch and cringe factor from us uh, freedom-loving Americans I mean, because of our national history and our national sin of race-based slavery and the Civil War. And so we, we hear this word slave and, you know, well, let's just let this parable stand on its, on its own feet. Let's let this parable speak to us first. As we think about Jesus' words here, I want to answer two questions. And the first is this. What's Jesus' point? What's the point of this parable? What's the big idea? And then why is this parable good news? 
What's the point? And why is it good news? First, the point. Well, it's a pretty straightforward parable. It's pretty simple. A master has a slave. It's a one-slave farm. And the slave's up in the mornings, taking care of the fields, farming, shepherding all day long. And five o'clock, when it's quitting time, Jesus asks three questions in this parable. Question number one, will any of you, if you were the master, would you say to your slave, oh, come on in, let's eat, let's talk, let's have some conversation time. And Jesus' audience, would know, you know, we're, we're polite Midwestern Americans who were born and reared on please and thank you, and there's not this going on. Jesus' audience is laughing it up. That's a good one, Jesus, because they know the answer is no. No, he would never say that. He would never say to his servant, you know, come on at once and recline at the table. No way. Question number two, will he not rather? Will he not rather? And everybody knows, yep, that's what he would do because service doesn't end at the front door, right? So now the slave, having worked in the field all day, has got to fix dinner and then put on, you know, get off the outdoor clothes, put on the indoor clothes and serve dinner and be there to fill the master's cup and clear the table and load the dishwasher and clean the kitchen. And then after the kitchen's closed and the table's cleaned and things are settled and the master's in his lazy boy, then he can eat. And then Jesus asks question number three, and does he thank him? And the audience just laughs. I'm telling you, they're not Midwestern Americans. They laugh. Of course not, Jesus. Of course not. Thank you to the servant. Who says that? What's that about? Huh? What is that about? What's going on here? It's a setup. That's what's going on here. <laughs> Jesus is setting them up. Jesus is softening the audience with verses 7 through 9. And he's going to drill the volleyball down their throats in verse 10. That's what's happening. So you also... See, Jesus began this parable, and they're thinking, I'm the master, and I'm not going to do this. No, 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 no. You're not the master. Jesus says, I'm the master. You're the servant. That's the deal. So you also, when you have done all that you have been commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Jesus says, I'm the master. You're the servant. Any questions? That's the deal. Okay? And here's the big idea. To be a servant of Christ, if you want to be a follower of Christ, if you want to be a Christian, if you want to be one who belongs to Jesus, do whatever Jesus wants, whenever Jesus wants it, for however long Jesus wants it, without obligating Jesus in any way. That's what he's saying in this parable. Can you see why liberty-loving Americans cringe at this? Right? And some of you may be thinking, okay, this is why I don't go to church. This is why I don't go to church. This is pastors who come across as demagogues who portray God as some abusive deity who runs people ragged all day and all night. And then when he's done using me, throws them away. And this is why I don't go to church. And, and some of you have had poor church experiences with pastors who act like God. And that's regrettable. Please understand, though, that Jesus' audience really would not have cringed at this parable. They wouldn't have. Um, 
Slavery was a part of their world, and specifically in this Hebrew culture, the Hebrew Bible had what was called indentured servitude. Indentured servitude. You see, there was no, there was no such thing as, as bankruptcy back then. So the law in Deuteronomy chapter 15 offered generous terms which allowed someone who had fallen on hard times to survive. So uh, the, the wealthy would offer a peasant guaranteed employment through this mechanism called indentured servitude so that the person and the person's family could be supported until the sabbatical year. What's that? Every seven years in the Hebrew culture, all debts, all debts were canceled. All debts. And so this indentured servitude would act as a survival mechanism so that this person could live and not hauled off into debtor's prison. And the maximum term that one could be indentured as a servant was until the sabbatical year, you see. So at the sabbatical year, Deuteronomy 15, all debts were canceled and all indentured servants were released. Furthermore, furthermore, to keep the person from returning into such indentured servitude, the master was not to let the servant go away empty-handed, but rather to furnish him and his family liberally. See? That was the mechanism. And so this parable is told in that context. So you can understand then how silly it sounds for the master in that context to invite the servant to the dinner table or thank the servant for the service. In fact, it's this servant who rather than being hauled off into debtor's prison is instead given a job and employment and the dignity of being able to pay off the debt for no more than six years. And furthermore, in Deuteronomy 15, if this servant really and truly loved the master and, uh, and, and the master's family, Deuteronomy 15 stipulated that at the end of that time, he could sign up for life. And there would be a, a ceremony where um, uh, the, the individual, the servant, the indentured servant, and the master, the master would take an awl and pierce the servant's ear and serve his or her beloved master for the rest of his or her life and have the security of, of, a, of a loving leader and a home and a roof all because of what the master had done, you see? That's the context here. So that's why... That's why Jesus says, if you want to be my follower, you need to do whatever I say, whenever I say it, for however long I say it, without obligating me in any way. That's the big idea here. There's two implications to this big idea. We've got to make sure we make peace with. And the first implication is this. Jesus is in charge. Jesus is in charge. Jesus insists on being the unchallenged authority over our lives. That's what's behind what he says in verse 10. So you also, when you have done all, all 
that you've been commanded. Sit in that for just a minute, will you? Oh, I'm, I, you know, freedom, love, and Americans, we just don't want to hear that. We don't. We want, we want to push the button on our smartphone, and we want God to say, what can I help you with? We want God to do all that we've commanded. We want him to give us good marriages and nice jobs and children who can be taken out to a restaurant without causing embarrassment. If you're, if you're feeling distant from God, could it be that you're expecting God to do your bidding? This parable says Jesus is in charge. We're not. Now, what does that look like? Well, keep reading here in Luke chapter 17 because in verses 11 through 19, there are some lepers who came to Jesus for healing. And it's such an interesting kind of healing that took place because you know, Jesus is with people. He's outside and there's a crowd and there's these lepers, these unclean people. They're yelling at him from a distance, you know. You know, uh, have mercy on us. And, and it says that when Jesus saw them, he said to them, you know, go and show yourselves to the priest. It doesn't say that he came up to them. I mean, he's just it's kind of across the crowd. He yelled at him. He yells back, go show yourselves to the priests. Waved at him, you know. <laughs> well, they'd already done that. That's why they were declared unclean. They, the, the priests, the temple priests, were, they were kind of the health officers. And unless they signed off, these lepers were not only physically ill, but social outcasts. You know, we already have. We're sick. And you want us to go back? That's like, that's like saying to someone blind, throw me the ball. That's like saying to someone in our deaf community, how do you like the music at our church? How rude. What do you mean? Well, well, well but they did. They did. And why did they? Because he said so. That's why. Because he said so. That's why. And then the scripture says, and as they went, they were healed. As they went, they were healed. This is so offensive to Declaration of Independence loving Americans. But here it is. If you obey the Lord only when you agree with the Lord, you have not obeyed the Lord. The Lord tells you to do something on Friday night and you ponder about it over the weekend and then Sunday night you decide, yeah, yeah, it sounds like a good idea, Jesus. I think we'll go along with that. You have not obeyed the Lord. To be a servant of Christ means doing whatever Jesus wants, whenever Jesus wants it, for however long Jesus wants it, without obligating Jesus in any way. He's in charge. We're not. That's implication number one. Implication number two is, Jesus doesn't owe. Jesus doesn't owe. Okay? So this past week, um, I was pleasantly ambushed by our church staff. Uh, they were kind enough to love on me. Uh, so I was meeting with um, uh, Nancy Anderson, my administrative assistant, and we were just talking about my schedule and just getting some agenda items done. Um, and we were in my office, and then 
outside my office is kind of a commons area. If you've been upstairs to see our offices, and and um, it was really loud out there. It, it was loud. It was kind of raucous loud. And you know, Nancy um, kind of stopped and said, "That's loud out there, Randy." I mean, and I said, "Yeah." And she said, uh, well, "How do you how do you get any studying done?" And you know. Um, Welcome to my world, Nancy. <laughs> and uh, I bought it hook, line, and sinker because no sooner that I said that, my door bust open and, and all the staff came. And uh, they, they just ambushed me. They got me this, uh, uh, this that's, a, that's a frosted cookie cross. That's what that is. And it had a really sweet note on it. And then they got me this uh, really over-the-top, generous uh, gift card. I mean, just, it, it was just... Um, it, it moved me, and uh, we had that, I put that out in our workroom then afterwards, and I took out a Sharpie and signed on the uh, foil, you know, help yourself, and I am not kidding you, within 10 minutes, I mean, that thing was nibbled down to the base of the cross, you know, so, <laughs> but, um, it was incredibly generous and loving. And, and in addition to that, I mean, I am just this, I am a wicked man. Uh, so I'm driving home to myself. Uh, I'm driving home and I'm having a conversation with myself. Um, and I'm thinking, wow, that was, that was, that was so neat. Uh, my goodness. I mean, they must think I am really something for them to appreciate me that much. You can see where this is going, don't you? <laughs> right, you know? Oh, I, 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 I wonder how many remarkable, and I would never say this out loud because I'm not stupid, but I say this in my car, you know? I wonder how many really remarkable pastors there are out there. <laughs> you know? And... And if my older brother were here, he would say, there's one less than you think. <laughs> he has the spiritual gift of criticism, my, my older brother. So, anyway. But I'm a sinner. I find it all too, I find it all, I find it all too easy to, to appreciate myself all year long. Huh? Oh, God, you don't have to thank me that I've been here for as long as I've been here. And God, you don't have to thank me that the church is nearly quadrupled in size. And you don't have to thank me for... And the Lord replies, I wasn't planning on it. <laughs> you know, I, I, I wasn't. Okay? And instead, he redirects my eyes to verse 10. When you have done all that you were commanded to do... You were commanded to go to Champaign-Urbana. You were commanded to pastor this church. You're commanded to be fruitful. You're commanded to love your wife and your sons. You're commanded to effectively steward the gifts and talents and abilities which I've given you. What you've done, or rather what I've done through you, is what you were commanded to do in the first place. Now, may I just turn the question on each of us here? You know, 
maybe some of us are kind of tempted to just be satisfied with ourselves. And so, you know, we, we look at verses 1 through 6 leading up to this parable and, and we say, uh, oh, we would never lead the little ones astray in the way that Jesus says in verse 2. Okay, got that one covered. Oh, and we're not going to hold grudges either. We're going to be unoffendable. So even if someone sins against us seven times in the day and then turns to us seven times in one day, and how many of us, if we heard someone say, I repent for the same thing seven times a day, would then kind of begin to doubt their authenticity? Well, okay, no, 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 I'm not going to do that. I'm going to trust that that's straightforward language, and, and, and I'm going to forgive them, and I'm not going to hold a grudge. Okay, well, I got that one too. I'm not going to leave the little ones astray. Got it. I'm going to forgive. Got it. And I'm going to keep asking God for more proper requests, uh, you know, uh, verse 5, like increase our faith. Okay, got that one too. And then we look to heaven, and we just kind of smile as if we're impressed with how magnanimous we are. I didn't bear a grudge today, God. Or I didn't swear today, didn't flip anybody off in traffic today, didn't hang up on my former today, it's been a good day. No, God says it's been a day when you have done exactly what you've been commanded to do all along. And when you have done all that you are commanded to do, you should say, verse 10, we are unworthy servants. Unworthy servants. What's that mean? Well, here's what it doesn't mean. And please hear me. Unworthy, unworthy servants, unworthy here does not mean, well, you're pond scum. Doesn't mean that at all. What's it mean? Well, the meaning of unworthy is what makes this parable good news. That's our second question. Unworthy literally means without need, without need of repayment, without need of compensation, without need. In other words, unworthy here means I can never repay what it costs to purchase me. That's what it means. God, I can never repay you for what it costs to purchase me. Um, Romans chapter 11, verse 35, best defines this word unworthy. Romans eleven thirty-five: 35. Who has given a gift to him, that's God, that he might be repaid? Who has given a gift to God that he might be repaid? Answer, no one. No one. No one can repay God. And no one can ever give God more than he deserves. And this is why, so important, this is why God never ever says thank you to us. Now, he might say, well done, good and faithful servant. But he'll never say, oh, Randy, that was such a good sermon. Thank you. He'll never say, he'll never say, he'll never say, oh, oh, thank you for praying with so-and-so in the fireside room. Thank you for doing that. Thank you for being a pastor. Thank you for, you know, helping to lead a church where you have such an active missions team. Thank you. Thank you. He never says thank you. You know why? Because, you see, when you thank someone, implicit in thanksgiving is an obligation. And God is never obligated. 
He's not. We will never obligate God, and we will never be able to offer God more than He deserves. On the other hand, God is always blessing us with more than we deserve. And here's the beauty of it. Here's what makes this good news. Because we will never be able to repay God for what He's given us, He is just as likely to bless us before we get our act together as after we get our act together. He never blesses us because He owes us. He just blesses us. And His greatest blessing was the sending of His own Son, Jesus Christ, to pay my debt with His own life. We Midwestern Americans get offended by this verse because we've been reared on please and thank you. And, you know, we kind of get offended when the master acts like the master. But let me tell you what kind of master we serve. Here's your master. He is the servant master of Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he made himself nothing and taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness and having been found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. This is your master. The consummate servant master who said, Father, I am here to do your will. The servant master who became indentured for my bankruptcy. I will pay Randy's debt. And he was pierced, not merely in his ear, but in his hands and his feet. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And, and, and you must know that the servant master who gave us Luke chapter 17, 7 through 10, is the same servant master of Luke 12, 37, it will be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. I tell you the truth, he will dress himself to serve. He will have them recline at the table and will come and wait on them. That's your master. Now, do any of your other masters do that? John Newton, who gave us the hymn Amazing Grace, also gave us these lyrics. Our pleasure and our duty, though opposite before, since we have seen his beauty, have joined to part no more. Our pleasure and our duty, though opposite before, since we have seen his beauty, have joined to part no more. When Christ is your master, pleasure Mary's duty, and their children are peace and joy. Peace. Peace knowing that you can truly trust Him over your life situation. I mentioned the Urbana Conference a little while ago. Uh, these days, the Urbana Conference, uh, because of the size and the worldwide scope, is held in St. Louis. And in the Urbana Conference of 2010, as the 16,000 attendees were gathering there in St. Louis, a water main broke. 
And the fire chief said to the president of InterVarsity Fellowship, Alec Hill, he said, this could take like eight hours or it could take three days. If it takes three days, I'm shutting the conference down. <laughs> These people have come here just for that purpose. Alec Hill said, for four long hours, the outcome hung in the balance. A type A personality, I wanted to run around panicked. But this time, to my surprise, I remained calm. Why? Because I had been learning that being the slave of a good and powerful master has its privileges. I had performed all of my duties and done everything I was supposed to do. And now my master's in control. And the conference went on. Peace. Jesus is in charge. He's got it covered. I do all I can do and then I trust him to do what he will do. Peace and joy. joy. Joy comes from knowing that you only have one person to please. Your identity, your self-worth, it's not dependent on what your kids think or your boss thinks or even what you think. What matters is what Christ thinks. And what Christ thinks is that your life will be most liberated when you become his slave. Being slave to Christ will free you from wondering and worrying about where you're going to spend eternity because now you belong to him. And I wonder how many of us, you know, we uh, gauge our spirituality and our spiritual maturity and even our eternal destiny based on how we happen to be feeling emotionally on any one particular day. And so, like if we're having a bad day emotionally, we get to the end of the day and we think, oh my goodness, I feel bad, therefore I must be bad. And now if I died, I'd be separated from Christ. And this teaching says you belong to Christ. He has hold of you. It's not what you think or feel that matters most. It's what he thinks that matters most. Now get at it. Get at it. Tom Little got at it. <laughs> and his grave is not in the United States. He's buried in Afghanistan. He's buried in a British cemetery at Kabul. And on his gravestone are not Bible verses. But on his gravestone, the gravestone of this missionary are lyrics by Bob Dylan. Let me die in my footsteps before I go down under the ground. Let me die in my footsteps before I go down under the ground. And that's what he did. Well, what would it be like if a thousand of us left this campus fully convinced that all we need is mercy and grace? That's all we need. What if we left here knowing to the core of our soul that we belong to Christ? And because we are His slave, we now have the freedom not to have to think about ourselves anymore, but, but we went out fully confident that we serve a God in heaven who's going to take care of us and who's going to love us. And then we're freed from the expectations of this world and we're freed from the rights and entitlements of this world. 
And because we are concerned with pleasing one and only one person, we are a community of slaves serving one another. That, church family, is true freedom. So let me die in my footsteps before I go down under the ground. Amen.